and welcome to the reading of the Telegraph Herald for Wednesday. And this is Peter Welch, and I am your reader. And this is March 1st, and you're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Information Services Network for the Blind and the Disabled. Iowa bill would alter rules to receive SNAP Medicaid. Legislation to modify the requirements for food stamps and health care programs advances out of committee. And in case I did forget, this is the reading of the Telegraph Herald, in case I forgot that. In Des Moines, a bill that would add requirements of applications for both food stamps and Medicaid programs advanced out of an Iowa House of Representatives committee on Tuesday. The bill would create many changes to the state's management of the federally funded Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program and Medicaid, with the goal of ensuring that no one receives benefits for which they do not qualify. Over the years, I've worked on this often in this committee, said Iowa Representative Shannon Lundgren, Republican of Piosta, who is a member and former chair of the House Health and Human Services Committee and voted for the bill on Tuesday. We want to make sure that the money is going to the people who actually need it. The committee advanced the bill on Tuesday, 12 to 9, with some Republicans joining all the committee's Democrats in voting against it. The bill would codify the current qualifying income level for both federal programs at 160% of the federal poverty level which comes to around 48000 for a typical family of three. It also would require applicants for benefits to complete a computerized identity authentication process, which would require them to answer financial and personal questions tailored to realities common among people with low incomes. The bill also would require both the Iowa Department of Health and Human Resources and the Iowa Department of Inspections and Appeals to more frequently test and monitor benefit recipients for any life change, such as the death of a dependent or loved one for whom they are a caregiver, a pay raise, or an asset purchase, which might disqualify them from the benefit they are receiving. The bill also caps the liquid assets member of a household can own and still receive SNAP benefits at $15,000, not counting one vehicle. The bill also makes the continuation of Iowa's Double Up Food Bucks program by which SNAP recipients receive matched funds on purchases of fruits and vegetables at participating locations contingent on Iowa's SNAP program, excluding purchases of candy and soft drinks that are not sugar-free. Proponents say that meticulous tracking of recipients' qualifications with the help of a new computerized system will help prevent fraudulent receipts, or I should say receipt, of benefits and help make sure that people are receiving the benefits for which they qualify. No one here wants to see people hungry in the state, said Iowa Representative Tom Jennery, Republican of Lamar's, who is managing the bill. Everyone here wants people to receive the benefits they deserve. But if you don't qualify for them, you don't. Jeremy also asked, excuse me, I should say, Jennery also uh, could not say how much fraud there is in the the federal programs. When asked by other committee members, 
Committee, Chan, uh, Committee Chair Ann Myers, Republican of Fort Dodge, said that the Department of Inspections and Appeals had caught $8 million in fraud last year for Medicaid. Iowa Representative Beth Wessel Kroschel, Democrat of Ames, said that if the department already was catching fraud, then the added work for state staff in the bill was duplicative. Uh, Meyer also said that the bill means that the department would not have to catch as much fraud in the first place. Iowa Representative Steve Bradley, Republican of Cascade, who was on the committee and voted in favor of the bill, said afterward that it would help stop fraud and could be good for benefit recipients as well. I think it's a good way to make sure we catch the fraud that's going on, he said, and there are a lot of ways for people to apply now. Democrats who opposed the bill in committee voiced many concerns. Some said that the additional work for staff and new computer systems would cost the state significantly more money and not create savings, since the programs in question are federally funded. Others said that the additional requirements of applicants would lead to many people who should qualify for assistance losing access to it. I know that more than 300,000 Iowans are food insecure, Wessel Crochel said. Every day in the news, we hear about inflation. Food inflation is a big part of that. This would make benefits much more difficult to access. While the Democrats voice concerns about trying double-up food bucks to the exclusion of sweets because it would have to be approved by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, which has not approved similar exclusion requests from states. Lundgren said that she did not share that concern. I love our Double Up Food Bucks program, especially because it allows people to use SNAP at our farmer's market and share that with local farmers, she said. But it's just common sense that SNAP should not be used for candy. Fenimore's Energizer plant slated to close. About 200 people stand to be laid off, but the timeline has not been released. In Fenimore, Wisconsin, a major manufacturing plant in Fenimore will close its doors after more than 50 years operating in the community, officials confirmed on Tuesday. Energizer Holdings Incorporated confirmed to the Telegraph Herald that its plants in Fenimore and Portage are slated for closure. Energizer Holdings recently met with representatives from Local 695 and the International Brotherhood of Teamsters regarding our intent to conduct a phased closing of our Portage and Fenimore facilities in Wisconsin. An Energizer Holdings spokesperson wrote in a statement, we have, to plan, we, have, we have no plans to close additional facilities. As we work toward a final resolution in Wisconsin, we will continue to focus on our colleagues, the people closest to this issue and who matters most. Officials with the International Brotherhood of Teamsters announced last month that the Fenimore imported sites were anticipated to close in the next 12 to 24 months. At the time, Energizer Holdings said in a statement that the company was communicating with employees and union officials about the future of the two plants, but delivered, uh, but declined, I should say, excuse me, to com comment further. The battery factory is one of Fenimore's largest employers and has been in the town since 1970, previously operating as Rayovac and Spectrum Brands. 
Ron Brisbois, Executive Director of Grant County Economic Development Corporation, said on Tuesday that about 200 people stand to be laid off at the Fenimore plant. Last week, he met with representatives from several area stakeholders, including Wisconsin Economic Development Corporation, the city of Fenimore, and Southwest Wisconsin Technical College to discuss the future of the plant and steps to be taken if it should close. We were kind of anticipating the worst that the plant will be closing, so this is falling in line with our planning was at the time, he said, making sure that the displaced workers are aware of the opportunities that are available to them is our number one focus right now, whether it be training or job opportunities. Union spokesperson Kara Dens confirmed in an email on Tuesday that the union representatives met with Energizer regarding the closure. She said that the company told Teamsters representatives that Energizer plans to reduce the workforce over time and close, though she said she could not provide additional details on the timetable for the closure. The the Teamsters are continuing to fight to keep those jobs in the community, Dens wrote. All right, let's see. What else is going on here on the Herald today? DRA board okays work on creating Schmidt Island Development Plan. RDG planning and design leads efforts to prioritize projects to boost economic growth. The nonprofit license holder for Dubuque's two casinos has approved work on a comprehensive development plan for Chaplin's Schmidt Island. Board members of the DRA approved a proposal with RDG Planning and Design to create a development plan for the island Tuesday at Diamond Joe Casino during the board's monthly meeting. The nonprofit DRA will invest $302,660 into the creation of the plan. I'm grateful that we're here to talk about how Schmidt Island can raise the tide here in Dubuque and how we can use Schmidt Island to, to be a tool to spur economic development and make us the great destination we want to become. Alex Dixon, president and CEO of DRA and Q Casino, said at the meeting, great ideas exist. Now we need a plan. Our DG planning and design staff will review existing master plans for Schmidt Island as part of their work, as well as complete further studies on the island, including on the current infrastructure and potential economic impact of future development. Ryan Peterson, senior partner at RDG Planning and Design, said that the development plan will take about nine months of work and then additional three months for review, approval, and adoption. After the plan is complete, it would need to be approved by both the DRA board and Dubuque City Council. Peterson said that creating the development plan will include working with agencies who outline floodplain boundaries to see how much of the island's land can be developed, as well as looking at ways that the island can be accessed, including on foot, bike, vehicle, or water taxi. In addition, he said that RDG Design will work with the City of Dubuque Leisure Services Department to look into opportunities for park development. It's an exciting opportunity, Peterson said. It's an opportunity to bring clarity, specificity, cost, and prioritization to things that we already know are beautiful, but they're untapped resources we can begin to elevate. 
DRA officials previously have shared potential ideas for projects on the island, including plans for an outdoor amphitheater at the site of the old Greyhound racing track and trail connections. The city of Dubuque in October applied for a $7.3 million destination low grant, which is supported through Federal American Rescue Plan Act money to go toward the amphitheater and trail connections, which are expected to cost $18.35 million. Dixon said that after the meeting, that local officials have not heard back uh, yet on the status of the grant application. We're preparing behind the scenes for it, and if we can get that call, he said. Kathy Bure, Director of Strategic Philanthropy and Schmidt Island Development for the DRA, also said Tuesday that members of both Leadership Dubuque and Young Professionals Dubuque have expressed interest in getting involved with a proposed project to light the Dubuque-Wisconsin Bridge. Bure said that those discussions currently are in very early stages. Following the completion of the development plan, DRA, official, DRA officials and board members will be able to prioritize projects on the island, Dixon went on to say. Okay, let's turn uh, to the section of the paper of Dubuque and Tri-State uh, of the paper. Longtime Dubuque Rescue Mission Director plans to retire this summer. After 16 years as Executive Director, Rick Meem will step aside but will continue to help assisting at the mission's new drop-in center. Rick Meem's faith informs the philosophy behind his time as executive director of Dubuque Rescue Mission. He cited a passage from Matthew 25, For I was hungry and you gave me food, I was thirsty, you gave me drink, a stranger and you welcomed me naked and you clothed me. There's the core of my faith, the core of the Christian faith, Meem says. After 16 years at the helm of Dubuque Rescue Mission, Meme announced t- Tuesday is his plan to retire this summer. That doesn't mean his time at the mission is over. He expects he will pick up hours overseeing a new drop-in center at 1598 Jackson Street when it opens, and he would like to help out more in the Rescue Mission kitchen. He still will be inviting Rescue Mission residents out to his farm in the warmer months. For meme, retirement means spending more time with the mission's residents and other guests. They'll be just fine, he said. No phone calls, no one calling me to address this or that. Meme will leave a role that expanded dramatically under his tenure. Since Meme took the job at two th- in 2007, the mission has added a greenhouse, a vegetable garden out back, several units of transitional housing, a second thrift store focused on furniture, and a mobile food pantry that the rescue mission piloted this year. Or, excuse me, I should say last year. When he started as executive director, the rescue mission had four staff, plus meme. When the drop-in center opens, the mission will have 26. Almost all of those staff are current or former residents. A practice meme expanded under his tenure that has become a hallmark of the rescue mission service. He really makes an effort to have a community, not just a homeless shelter or a food program, said Ashley Noonan, regional homeland, excuse me, I should say homeless coordinator at Community Southern of Eastern Iowa and a former garden manager at the mission. That's something really hard to do, especially when you're working in an environment like an emergency shelter. Meme has served on CSEI's board since 2019. 
Some people have been part of Meme's community for more than a decade. Phil Armstrong, age 43, has struggled with homelessness since 2003, managing both a drug addiction as well as bipolar disorder and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. He met Meme in 2007 while living at the rescue mission and said that Meme has never, has never been more than a phone call away since. Rick is the kind of guy who has never turned away from me, said Armstrong, who started working in the rescue mission kitchen at the beginning of the year. Homelessness has climbed by multiple measures in Meme's final years. On Tuesday, Meme reiterated a call for greater intervention on homelessness, saying that would require direct investment by federal, state, and local governments. The, uh, the missions in every city and all kinds of charities will fill those gaps. But at some point, there's going to be a tipping point where they're no longer equipped to do that. Okay, what else is going on? All right, let's take a look at Dubuque. Dubuque Airport still awaiting approval to start commercial carriers' flights. The Dubuque Regional Airport director told city council members this week that he could not provide an update on when a new air carrier will make its debut flight out of the community. Airport Director Todd Dulcing shared with council members an update on progress toward Avilo Airlines making its first flights from the airport while presenting a proposed budget for fiscal year 2024. The airline originally was scheduled to make its first flight out of Dubuque on the 11th of January, but that flight was canceled after, after Dasing announced that the airport had not secured approval of its complete security plan from the Transportation Security Administration. Since then, since then, Avilio has been operating its scheduled Dubuque flights out of Eastern Iowa Airport in Cedar Rapids as local officials continue working to receive approval for their plan. Dubuque continues to work with TSA to approve our airport security program, Del Singh told council members. We anticipate an, an announcement coming soon regarding start of service. Speaking with the Telegraph Herald after the meeting, Delsing said that he could not provide an estimate for when that announcement might be. Right now, we have no idea when that announcement would be coming, he says. I just wanted to reassure people that we are still working through the process. He also reiterated that message Tuesday during a Dubuque Airport Commission meeting. Dubuque Regional Airport currently operates with a supporting security program under the TSA, which is required for airports that offer flights that hold 60 or fewer passengers. With the arrival of Avilio, which will operate Boeing 737 aircraft that can hold as many as 189 passengers, the airport now must have an approved complete security plan. Officials announced late last year that Avilio's plan to offer flights between Dubuque and Orlando, Florida, which will mark the return of commercial air service to Dubuque following the departure of American Airlines in September. The airport submitted its complete security plan for review to the TSA on the 18th of December, but the TSA informed local officials on the 3rd of January that it would need to be resubmitted with changes. While well, a transportation security inspector signed off on the submitted plan in early February, Del Singh said that he has not received an update from the federal agency on the three additional review phases that the plan must go through before it can be implemented. Mayor Brad Kavanaugh at the 
budget hearing commercial, uh, Day Singh and his efforts to bring commercial air service back to Dubuque. I got to see how very hard you're working, Kavanaugh said. The challenges remain, and we need to continue working on it. The council must approve a fiscal year 2024 budget by the end of April. All right, let's take a look now, news and brief. Manchester authorities warned of phone scam. In Manchester, Iowa, authorities in Manchester are warning residents about a new phone scam. The scam involves phone calls from unknown subjects claiming that a relative is in trouble, according to an online announcement by the Manchester Police Department. The scam continues with the unknown caller telling victims to follow instructions in order to see their relative again. In at least one case, screaming could be heard in the background of the phone call. At least one victim was instructed to bring $2,000 to a Walmart and wait for further instructions. Police said that residents receiving such a call should report it to law enforcement. That should avoid following any of the caller's instructions, police said. You know, the best thing to do is just to hang up, too. Dubuque man sentenced to probation for bar assault. A Dubuque man recently was sentenced to 10 days in jail and two years of probation for assaulting another man, reportedly breaking his nose. Zachary B. Torball, age 32, was sentenced in Iowa District Court of Dubuque County after pleading guilty to two counts of assault with injury. He initially was charged with one count of willful injury, causing serious injury, but pleaded to the lesser included charge. The Dubuque County Sheriff's Department was granted the discretion to allow Torbell to serve his jail sentence through home confinement with GPS monitoring, according to the sentencing's reports from Associate Judge Robert Rich Richter. Court documents state that the police responded on the 27th of March to Hoffie's Sports Bar at 285 Main Street after a disturbance was reported. Officers found a blood trail leading down the steps into the bar and blood on the floor. They found a man whose face and shirt were both covered in blood. A witness told police that Torbell had been in the bar and was acting aggressive, aggressively toward other customers. Torbell refused to leave when a bouncer told him to, and the man who ended up injured stepped in to help escort Torbell up the stairs and out of the bar. Torbell then sucker-punched the man, punching him at least twice, documents state. The man was taken by ambulance to Mercy One Dubuque Medical Center, where he was treated for a broken nose and laceration near his left eyebrow. Okay, now let's turn to um, the opinion page uh, of the paper. Um, this is the you know, Opinion Telegraph Herald column. Um, we have a number of uh, editorials here. We're not going to read them all, but um, what I would like to read is this uh, article regarding Iowa's ethanol producers. The article is titled, Legislation and Attack on Iowa's Ethanol Producers. After 30 years of executive leadership career with CHS and Lando Lakes in the Twin City, I re returned my route to my roots in northwest Iowa to raise crops and cattle. As a farmer, I fully understand and share a farmer's deep connection for the land. My move home just happened to coincide with the build-up phase of our great biofuels industry. I liked what I saw, so I invested in it. 
Today, I serve on the board of an ethanol company and am the president of the Iowa Renewable Fuels Association. Agriculture has always been successful by staying aligned with its customers' needs. Today, ethanol plants are no different as they work to lower the carbon intensity of their products. The largest domestic and export markets are demanding low-carbon ethanol. Passage of federal clean fuel tax credits last year, I'm sorry, I should say the passage of federal clean fuel tax credits last year were also on absolute game, were an absolute game changer, equating to up to 60 cents per gallon of ethanol produced with carbon capture and sequestration of CCS technology. While folks have different views of carbon policies and credits, Every Iowan needs to fully understand the real-world impact they have on Iowa's ethanol plants. If we want to maintain or grow Iowa ethanol production, it will require CCS. So, if you're a farmer and you're honestly willing to accept a very low corn price and negative basis reminiscent of the 1990s, and you still oppose CCS, that's your right. But if you assume you can oppose CCS, and there won't be a huge economic price to pay, then I politely suggest that you think again. If you're in Iowa legislature, and you honestly believe our current laws don't provide enough land uh, landowner protections, that's your right. But if you support legislation that singles out CO2, or a liquid fuel pipelines instead of applying new standards to all eminent domain requests, then I politely suggest that you're not really interested in property rights. There's no other way for Iowa ethanol producers to, to interpret such legislation, whether intended or not, than as a direct attack to the benefit of those trying to eliminate liquid fuels. Is it any wonder that the anti-ag, anti-ethanol, anti-internal combustion engine Sierra Club is leading the charge to support such bills. CCS is the best tool. We have to keep liquid fuels viable in the competition with electric vehicles. If you're an activist that shouts no eminent domain for private companies and you live off the natural gas and electric grid, good for you. But if you heat your home with gas and light your rooms with electricity, I politely suggest that your words and deeds don't align. The electric and gas providers are all private companies. How do you think the distribution networks got built? Finally, if you consider yourself an environmentalist and want drastic measures to prevent catastrophic climate change, by all means, take your stand. But if you call CCS greenwashing, I politely suggest that you're not serious about science. Taking carbon already in the atmosphere from past fossil fuel use and putting it back underground should not only be considered an incredible achievement from your supposed point of view, but it is central tenant of every country's plan to meet 2050 carbon reduction goals. If Iowa enacts laws that make CCS a practical impossibility for its ethanol plants, it will be a massive blow to our farm economy and the entire entire Iowa economy. IRFA members urge all Iowans to pull together and to find a fair and equitable path 
forward for CCS because capturing and sequestering carbon will be life or death for the most law for the most Iowa ethanol plants over the next five years. I forgot also to remind you that or to tell you that this was written by Al Gease, who is an Iowa Renewable Fuels Association member. In Piosta, Iowa, a Dubuque man arrested with 1,270 pills, including fentanyl, recently was sentenced to 12 years in prison for related charges. Eldrick D. Robertson, age 46, was sentenced in Iowa District Court of Dubuque County after pleading guilty to a controlled substance violation and possession of crack cocaine. As part of a plea deal, a second controlled substance violation was dismissed, as well as a charge of unlawful possession of prescription drugs, according to the sentencing order from Judge Michael Schubert. Court documents state that a Piosta police officer pulled over Robertson's vehicle on December 20th due to its dark window tint. Dubuque County Sheriff's Department K-9 then alerted authorities to the presence of narcotics inside. In a subsequent search of the vehicle, a duffel bag containing 11 smaller bags filled with pills were found. Police identified 780 of those pills as, as oxycodone and another 300 pills as containing fentanyl documents went on to state. Police also found a backpack inside the vehicle containing five bags of marijuana totaling 180.4 grams. Also found in the backpack were bags containing an additional 80 oxycodone pills, 61 Adderall pills, and 49 fentanyl pills, as well as bagging containing 3.2 grams of crack cocaine. All right, uh, I want to remind you that you are listening to the reading of the Telegraph Herald for Wednesday, the 1st of March. And I am your reader, Peter Welch, and this is IRIS, the Iowa Radio Information Services Network for the Blind and the Disabled. Okay, we have some obituary news. Uh, the first one is Piosta, Iowa, Ed, Edward J. Heidersheet. Age 83 of Piostop, Iowa, passed away peacefully, surrounded by his family, on Sunday, the 26th of February, at Stonehill Care Center in Dubuque. A visitation for Ed will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. on Wednesday, March 1st, at the Reef Funeral Home in Piosta, Iowa, where a prayer service will be held at 3.45 p.m., Visitation will also be held after 9.30 a.m. on Thursday at the funeral home. Verna May jo Joannes of Dyersville, Iowa, has passed at the age of 89. She was staying at the Mercy One in Dubuque, Iowa. Uh, visitation uh, will be held from 3 to 7 on Friday the 3rd of March at Kramer Funeral Home in Dyersville, where an auxiliary a rosary will commence at 4 p.m. Visitation will continue at Kramer Funeral Home from 9 to 10 a.m. prior to the funeral mass. Margaret M. Fox uh, has passed in East Dubuque, Illinois. Margaret Mary Midge Fox, age 83, uh, passed away on the 25th of February at Unity Point Health Finley Hospital. A private memorial service will be held at a later date at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Dubuque, Iowa, with her loved ones. 
Daniel R. Kelly, age 57, has passed away on February the 26th at the University of Iowa Hospital and Clinics after suffering a heart attack. Private service for family will be at Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory with military honors by the Dubuque Marine Corps League and the Iowa Army National Guard. The celebration of life will be held on the 3rd of March from 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. at Happy's Place at, 2020, at 2323 Rockdale Road. William Rita, age 90, of Galena, Illinois, passed away on the 22nd of February. In lieu of flowers, donations can be made to Dubuque Hospice and the villas at Sinsawawa. Online condolences may also be left at www.furlongfuneralchapel.com. Okay, let's go back to the uh, to the uh, section of the paper uh, with uh, the Des Moines area uh, being uh, written up again about uh, a bill to regulate traffic cameras advances. In Des Moines, an Iowa Senate subcommittee on Tuesday advanced a bill to regulate local government's use of ticking of ticketing, excuse me, traffic cameras like those being considered by the city of Dubuque. The bill would limit the use of the cameras to areas with demonstrated needs, prohibit mobile cameras, require signage marking the camera's location, and require an annual report to Iowa Department of Transportation about safety and citation impacts. The bill also would direct 10% of fines received from the citations by the cameras to be paid into the state's road use tax fund. Iowa Senator Michael Klemish, Republican of Spillville, who represents Clayton County and Holy Cross in Dubuque County, chaired the subcommittee of the Senate Transportation Committee. He also said that he had long favored regulating traffic cameras. He said that the bill's rules were reasonable expectations of cities and counties. In a nutshell, this bill provides regulatory framework for traffic cameras, he said during the meeting. It does not outlaw them. It allows the DOT the ability to provide additional rules around the regulatory framework. During the hearing, the police chiefs of Des Moines and Cedar Rapids spoke to cameras' beneficial use in their cities. Des Moines Police Chief Dana Wingert said that he appreciated some of the bill's rules more than others. The annual reporting is a big one. Collecting the data, reporting that showing the reduction in crashes and working with the DOT on the front end, he said, supporting that requirement. But mobile cameras are near and dear. Use of those are based on citizen complaints. Two days ago, there was a mobile unit deployed three blocks from my home, requested by school administration and people in the neighborhood. Cedar Rapids Police Chief Wayne German said a DOT requirement to take down cameras over a busy intersection there provided that they make roads safe in his city. In the 18 months when the state had us turn them off, we incurred fatalities because they were turned off. Iowa Senator Adrian Dickey, Republican of Packville, enthusiastically supported the bills, especially because he said some cities use cameras not for public safety, but as revenue generators. There are some com communities who are using them in that manner, he said, and that's part of the reason we're here today. Some of the bad apples. You all keep saying that this is a money grab. He says, the only money grab I see is just going after 10%. And why put that to the road use tax fund? Why not put it toward public safety, which is underfunded? 
What should have happened years ago if we could all roll back the clock is exactly what is in this bill. Okay, everyone, this is Andy taking over for Peter. Peter had to take off a little early today, so I'll be filling in for the rest of the program of this reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. Well, are you hungry tonight? Maybe you might want to uh, make something nice here in the lifestyle and food section. Make pork chow mein in about 15 minutes, a story by Linda Gassenheimer. On a recent visit to a Chinese restaurant, I noticed chow mein on the menu. It's a traditional Chinese dish that sometimes takes a backseat to lo mein. Both are noodle dishes. Chow mein noodles are crisp and served with a light sauce. Lo mein noodles are soft and part of a rich sauce. This is a quick and easy version of chow mein that you can make at home in about 15 minutes. Chinese egg noodles are the typical noodles used for chow mein. They're made with flour and added egg. If they are difficult to find, thin angel hair pasta works very well. Helpful hints, you can use shredded packaged cabbage instead of Chinese cabbage. Make sure your wok or skillet is very hot when adding the noodles. Countdown. Place water for noodles on to boil. Prepare ingredients. When water comes to a boil, add the noodles and stir-fry ingredients. Shopping list to buy a quarter pound of Chinese egg noodles or angel hair pasta, one small bottle of reduced sodium soy sauce, one small bottle of dry sherry, a half pound of pork tenderloin, one small package of shiitake mushrooms, three ounces needed, one bunch of scallions, one small Chinese cabbage, also called Napa cabbage, and one red bell pepper. Staples, canola oil, sugar, and garlic. So it serves about two, and to make uh, this pork chow, chow mein, you'll need about a quarter pound of Chinese egg noodles, two tablespoons reduced medium soy sauce, two teaspoons of sugar, two tablespoons of sh uh, dry sherry, two tablespoons of canola oil, divided for use, four crushed garlic cloves, two scallions thinly sliced, two cups of thinly sliced Chinese cabbage, one cup of sliced red bell pepper, a half pound of per pork tenderloin cut into a fourth inch strips, a half cup of shiitake mushrooms, about three ounces. What you'll do, you'll bring a medium size saucepan, three quarters filled with water to a boil. Add the noodles and boil for three to four minutes or according to package instructions. Drain into a colander and rinse under cold water to prevent them sticking together. Mix soy sauce, sugar, and sherry together in a small bowl and set aside. Heat one tablespoon of oil in a large wok or skillet and add garlic, scallions, cabbage, and red bell pepper. Stir fry for two minutes. Remove and set aside. Add meat and mushrooms and stir fry for two minutes. Return the vegetables to the pan, then push the ingredients to the side to form a hole in the center. Add the soy sauce mixture into the hole and bring all the ingredients together over the sauce. Toss well and remove to a plate. Raise the heat to high and add the remaining one tablespoon of oil. Add then the cooked noodles and toss until they are browned. Return the ingredients to the pan and mix with the noodles. Divide between the two dinner plates. There you go, some recipe action there. You know what? We used to do a show here called End With Your Spirits. It was quite a show, and we used to do recipes on there. I, I hope Mary Frances lets, uh, lets us bring that back. That was, 
That was quite a show. In the nation and world section, officials make case for renewed surveillance powers. We'll read this and then we'll get into some sports. Democrats and Republicans alike pose serious questions about the FISA program. This story by Eric Tucker of the Associated Press. Dateline Washington, where the Biden administration officials urged Congress on Tuesday to to renew a surveillance program the government has long seen as vital in protecting national security, but whose future is uncertain because of scrutiny from an unusual alignment of Democrats and Republicans. The program, which is under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, better known as FISA, F-I-S-A, grants American spy agencies sweeping powers to surveil and examine communications of foreigners located outside the United States. It's set to expire at year's end unless Congress agrees to renew it. Officials in the Democratic administration bracing for a contentious debate on Capitol Hill about reauthorizing the program sought on Tuesday to make a public case about the value of the statutory authorities that are at risk of expiring. They asserted that the program in recent years has yielded valuable insight into ransomware attacks on critical infrastructure, helped disrupt potential acts of terror and efforts to recruit spies, and contributed to the killing of al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawari in a drone strike last August. At issue is a provision of, the, of FISA known as Section 702, which allows spy agencies to collect huge swaths of foreign communications without a warrant. But that tool has drawn scrutiny from civil liberties advocates because it results in the incidental collection from Americans when those Americans are in contact with the foreign surveillance targets. As of today, I don't accept the claim that Americans' privacy is adequately protected under the current 702 program, said Senator Ron Wyden, Democrat of Oregon. A longtime Senate Intelligence Committee member who has long pressed U.S. spy agencies on their compliance with civil liberties. Wyden said he had spoken to administration officials about disclosing how often officials search incidental collection for information about Americans. The intelligence agencies issue an annual transparency report, but have not published a precise number. This is representative of one of the most important challenges of our time, particularly for policymakers, which is to demonstrate that security and liberty are not mutually exclusive, Wyden said in an interview. Section 702 was first added to FISA in 2008 and was renewed for six years in 2018 when then-President Donald Trump, who routinely lambasted government intelligence agencies, originally tweeted opposition to the program but then reversed himself. This year's fight for renewal is again unfolding in a polarized political climate. Republicans still decry FBI errors during the investigation into links between Russia and Trump's 2016 Republican presidential campaign say they're skeptical of the government's need for broad spy powers and maintain the authorities are ripe for abuse and overreach. Representative Chris Stewart, Republican of Utah, said he believed Congress would ultimately reauthorize the program, but that getting Republican support is going to be harder than it's ever been. The importance of it is such that we can't fail, said Stewart, a House Intelligence Committee member, but it's going to be very difficult. Assistant Attorney General Matthew Olson discussed the program in a speech at the Brookings Institution think tank. The bottom line is that Section 702 gives us the intelligence that's necessary for us to stay one step ahead of our adversaries, and we cannot afford to let it lapse, Olson said. 
So it's time to sound the alarm. We must act with urgency, and that is why I am here today. National security officials say Section 702 makes possible their most critical work, from collecting intelligence on China to stopping ransomware attacks and other cyber intrusions. Now we move on to the sports section here in this reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. Andrew Halpin for Peter Welch. Familiarity key for Ree in returning to Milwaukee. Cascade native earns win in first spring training game. It's written by Jim Leitner. Colin Ray enjoyed his brief time with the Milwaukee Brewers organization at the end of the 2021 season. So signing a free agent minor league contract with the organization last month just felt right. The 32-year-old right-handed pitcher from Cascade, Iowa, earned the win in his spring training debut with the team Monday afternoon in surprised Arizona. He allowed only one hit while pitching the seventh inning of the Brewers' 10-4 victory over the Kansas City Royals. Milwaukee scored three runs in the top of the eighth to break a 4-4 tie and tacked on three more in the ninth for insurance. I'm excited. I feel really good, Ray said before officially reporting to camp in February. I'm really looking forward to seeing the guys I met when I was with the organization last time and getting to know the coaches on a higher level because I was only with them for a short time. I really didn't get a chance to get to know them as well as I would have liked. It was kind of hard to get to know everybody in a short amount of time like that, but when you get to spring training, it's much more relaxed, uh, much more relaxed atmosphere, and you have a lot more time to be around guys and to get to know them, he said. Ray spent most of the past two seasons with the Fukuta SoftBank Hawks of Nippon Professional Baseball Organization, but he pitched the final two months of the 2021 season in the Brewers organization after leaving Japan to be closer to family following the premature birth of his daughter. Fukuka approved the temporary move, and he returned to Japan last season to fulfill the final year of a two-year deal. After signing with the Brewers organization in August 2021, Ray went 4-2 with a 2.27 ERA and 35 strikeouts in 35 and two-thirds innings of work for AAA Nashville. In four starts during the month of September, the six-foot-five, 235-pound right-hander posted a four-to-nothing record with a 1.16 ERA and 23 strikeouts in 23 and a third innings. And the Brewers promoted Ray to Milwaukee for the final series of the regular season when star reliever Devin Williams fractured his throwing hand. Ray made one appearance with the Brewers on the second-to-last day of the 2021 regular season. He came on in relief of Cy Young Award winner Corbin Burns, who pitched the first two innings and took the loss in an 8-3 decision at Los Angeles. Ray allowed five runs on seven hits and struck out five in the final six innings of the game. He threw 91 pitches, 57 for strikes, and more importantly, eight enough innings to save Milwaukee's pitching staff for the final game the following day. Milwaukee was a really good fit because the organization has so many really good guys with similar personalities, Ray said. I really like the fact that they have a lot of really talented pitchers that I can learn from. They have some of the top young arms in the big leagues right now, so I'm looking forward to being around them and asking them questions. The Brewers plan to use Ray as a starter this season. At the time of his signing, they contemplated his role. Things could change, but that's where we are now, Ray said. To be honest, I'm fine with any role. It works out that they told me to come to camp as a starter 
because that's basically how I'd been preparing during the winter. It's a little easier to go from starting role to the bullpen than vice versa. Ray made his big league debut with San Diego, the San Diego Padres in 2015, and has also pitched for the Miami Marlins and Chicago Cubs during his career. He owns an 8-8 eight eight record and 4.90 ERA in 154 and a third innings, over 36 career MLB appearances. All right, in local sports now. Spartans deny Rams. Pleasant Valley holds off senior, a win short of state tourney. This is written by Danny Miller of DeWitt, Iowa. That's where our dateline is. It's just never quite came together like it has all year. And unfortunately for Dubuque Sr., it happened at the worst possible time. For much of Tuesday's Class 4A Substate 3A Championship, Pleasant Valley matched and oftentimes outmuscled the Rams' signature physical style of play and used a late fourth quarter scoring run to create the largest margin of separation all game en route to a 54-51 victory over number 7th ranked Dubuque Senior at DeWitt Central High School. 19 wins is nothing to hang your head about, Rams 12th grader John Willie said. We put in the work, and really it's just horrible that we had to end it here. Being able to be with the people I love to be around, I'm just going to miss it. I know the team is going to miss it. Through the first 28 minutes of the 32-minute contest, the lead changed hands 15 times before the Spartans went on a 7-0 scoring run to take a 51-45 lead with 3 minutes and 19 seconds remaining. The Rams clawed within two twice in the final minutes but could never close the gap. They had us scouted really well, and we just weren't ready for it. And it kind of surprised us a little bit, Willie said. We weren't ready until the fourth, and you can't do that in this big of a game. Senior was attempting to reach its ninth state tournament appearance and seventh under head coach Wendell Eimers. Pleasant Valley, with a 20-6 record, will be riding a 10-game winning streak into Des Moines and will be playing in the seventh, its seventh state tournament. Tevin Schultz led senior 19-4 with 13 points. Jacob Williams added 11. And Mason Sorensen 10 for the Rams, which spent the entire season inside the top 10 in the Associated Press and IHSAA polls. Coy Kipper was the catalyst for the Spartans offensively, scoring a game-high 17 points from the point guard position, while David Gorsline added 15. The first quarter alone saw five lead changes as the teams grinded to an 11-11 tie after eight minutes. Senior, the number one rebounding team in Class 4A, saw the Spartans match its physicality, corralling several key offensive rebounds and turning them into second-chance points. But the Rams got a huge lift off the bench from Sorensen, who provided 10 first-half points to keep his team down just a point, 26 to 25 at the break. Schultz closed the third with two interior hoops to close within one, 37 to 36, after PB snagged its largest lead of the game, 37 to 32. The freshman praised the veteran mentorship he received during his debut varsity season. All the seniors, they had great leadership all season, Schultz said. I learned a lot from all of those guys. We played a lot better than we were expected to. We really exceeded expectations, and overall, this was a great season. Schultz gave the Rams a 45-44 lead with 4 minutes and 28 seconds remaining, but Pleasant Valley answered with really the lone prolonged scoring run of the game, 
a seven-point surge to take a 51-45 lead. Senior had one last gasp with 18.6 seconds remaining, down 54-51, but as was the case all night, the offense didn't find its rhythm. Willie was forced to take a fadeaway three-pointer in the closing seconds that fell off the mark. As he and his five fellow seniors closed their Ram careers, Walker, Tart, Hayden Jake, Jacobs-Meyer, Devonta Jackson, Wesley Schmidt, and Sorensen, Willie hopes next year's returnees use the sting of Tuesday's defeat to fuel them to the next step. I hope it burns in our younger guys to make them get to want to get there, Willie said. I hope they take this as a lesson that you've got to get the work done at the end when it counts. Schultz will be among that group of underclassmen. We're going to remember this, Schultz said. Next year, if we get here again, we won't lose. Here's another local and area roundup story from the Telegraph Herald. Southwestern flexes depth rolls into regional semis. Southwestern showed off its depth in its playoff opener. Landon Rogers scored a game-high 14 points. Anthony Martin added 12, and 11 different Wildcats scored at least two points in third-seeded Southwestern's 65-29 victory over 14th-seeded Weston in a WIAA Division V regional quarterfinal on Tuesday night in Hazel Green, Wisconsin. Aiden Kelleher and Everett Drossler added eight points apiece for the Wildcats, 17-7, who will host six-seeded Benton in Friday's regional semifinal. Potosi, 75, Lafarge, Youth Initiative, 32. At Potosi, Wisconsin, Gavin Wonderland scored a game-high 20 points. Logan Cruder added 12, and Aiden Upina had 11, and 10 different chieftains scored in second-seeded Potosi's route of Lafarge in a WIAA Division V regional quarterfinal. Potosi, 19-5, and will host 7th-seeded Barnveld in Friday's regional semifinal. Barnveld, 49, Shellsburg, 43. At Barnveld, Wisconsin, 7th-seeded Barnveld ousted the 10th-seeded Miners in a WIAA Division V regional quarterfinal. From there we go to Ithaca, 73, and Cassville, 49. At Ithaca, Wisconsin, 5th-seeded Ithaca beat the 12th-seeded Comets in a WIAA Division V regional quarterfinal. Cuba City, 82, Riverdale, 43. At Cuba City, Wisconsin, Max Lucy scored 19 points. Cody Houdeker and Gavin Vaser, or Vaisin added 13 apiece, and Reese Rosencrantz had 12. And the fifth-seeded Cubans handled 12th-seeded Riverdale in their WIAA Division IV Regional Quarterfinal. Cuba City, 18-7, will play at fourth-seeded River Ridge in Friday's Regional Semifinal. River Ridge 79, Lancaster 48. At Patch Grove, Wisconsin, the fourth-seeded Timberwolves routed the number 13-seeded Flying Arrows in their WIAA Division IV Regional Quarterfinal. River Ridge will host fifth-seeded Cuba City in Friday's Regional Semifinal. Fenimore 51, Iowa Grant 42. At Fenimore, Wisconsin, the eighth-seeded Golden Eagles beat the ninth-seeded Panthers in their WIAA Division IV Regional Quarterfinal and advanced to play at top-seeded Onalaska Luther in Friday's regional semifinal. Finally, in college baseball, Iowa 9, Loris 2. At Iowa City, McCallum went 2 for 3 and drove in a run as the Dewhawks lost to the Hawkeyes. Dubuque 11, St. Mary's 2. At 
Auburndale, Florida, Parker Allen went four for five with a triple, a home run, and five RBIs, and Kyle Ratty and Patrick Rafferty drove in two runs apiece as the Spartans beat St. Mary's. Well, taking a check of the forecast here before we sign things off for today. For today, your Wednesday, expect mostly cloudy and breezy conditions that high of 50 degrees, winds from the west and southwest up to 20 miles per hour. For tonight, Expect a low of 28 degrees. Tomorrow, low clouds and colder conditions with a high of just 39. Winds out of the east up to 16 miles per hour. Friday morning moves in snow breezy with periods of wet snow. One to three inches expected. A high of 37 degrees for your Friday. Winds from the north and northeast up to 20 miles per hour. But at least it'll be wet and not that sticky, heavy stuff. Low of 23 degrees on Friday night into Saturday. And on Saturday, a thick cloud cover. A high of 41 degrees. Winds out of the west and southwest up to 14 miles per hour. Low of 26 on Saturday night. But again, for your Wednesday, expect a high of 50 degrees. And that concludes this reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald here on IRIS, the Iowa radio reading information service for the blind and print disabled. This has been Andrew Hopp, your reader, filling in, saying thank you so much for listening and also for Pete Welch who opened the program. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. Have a great day, everyone, and straight ahead.